0: It's Tuesday, March 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Everyone was waiting for the Grand Princess cruise ship to dock in Oakland, California. Now that it's there, it will be a two to three day process for everyone to get off. Those in need of medical attention go first, followed by those infected, then residents of California and the rest. Crew members will remain in quarantine on the ship and it will go back out to sea. Steve Gregory, reporter at KFI News, joins us for more on yet another cruise ship to come down with COVID-19. Next, we have another round of primaries here for the Democrats. Six states are voting today with Michigan as the big prize. Joe Biden is polling well and beating Sanders there, but that was also the case in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was beating Sanders, only for him to narrowly win the state. Steve Shepard, senior campaigns and elections editor at Politico, joins us for what the polls say about today's votes. Finally. Back to coronavirus. With new cases on the rise, public transit agencies across the U.S. are ramping up their responses. The big secret weapon is bleach. In New York alone, there are 4,373 buses and 6,418 train cars. These will be disinfected every 72 hours. The risk is still low overall getting it on public transit, but it all depends on how crowded it is and how long you ride. Andrew Hawkins, senior reporter at The Verge, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: We're also working with the industries, including the airline industry, the uh, cruise ship industry, which obviously will be hit. Uh, we're working with them very, very strongly. We want them to uh,
0: travel. We want people to travel to certain locations and not to other locations at this moment. Joining us now is Steve Gregory, KFI news reporter. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Always a pleasure. We're going to continue talking about coronavirus and the Grand Princess cruise ship that just docked in Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. There's about 3,500 total people on that ship. I think only 21 people have tested positive for coronavirus. Some 46 have been tested. A lot has been made about why this cruise ship went to Oakland instead of San Francisco. I think that's where it departed from or something. So tell us why Oakland.
2: Oakland actually was a great place logistically. Now, there were a lot of sites being considered the Port of San Francisco, the Alameda Naval Base, even Southern California, Los Angeles, Long Beach. And what had been determined is that Oakland has a port area that has a lot of empty buildings, a lot of larger buildings. They were able to set up triage centers there, plus its proximity to the Oakland International Airport was important because those people on the ship that are from other countries, they wanted to be able to put them on charter flights immediately and get them off to their home countries to where they'll be quarantined there. So it was done with great care. They really went through this thing. They brought in FEMA. They brought in Health and Human Services. Local, state authorities also were all part of this. Now, the mayor of Oakland, though, was very concerned about it because she said that she felt that in the past, Oakland had always been sort of discriminated against environmentally. In fact, I believe she used the term environmental racism at one point. I heard that, yeah. And- She basically is talking about the fact that Oakland was always sort of mistreated and always got the short end of the stick, if you will. But in this case, she said she felt that it was the right thing to do to open up her city for this very controversial ship to dock there. Because the San Francisco Harbor, if they had done it there, where most of the cruise lines go anyway, it would have been very close to the Embarcadero, Pier 39, a very, very big tourist area. And also the proximity to residential areas. And then they knew right off the bat, people living in that area would not have liked that at all.
0: Yeah. They had to create an 11 acre containment area so that they can process everybody. And this process is going to take two to three days as it is because there's so many people. Talk to us a little bit about how that process is going to work out. Right.
2: It's an interesting hierarchy because they were able to send some, what they call hasty teams. And these hasty teams are basically search and rescue people out to the ship sort of triage, put people in order. So when they got to the dock, they realized the first people off the boat are going to be those that are critically injured or need immediate attention, followed by those who have tested positive for the virus, followed by those who are symptomatic. And then after that, anyone who is a resident of California goes next. After that, people who are residents of the United States, they will be shipped to other air bases in Texas and Georgia. And then finally, it'll be anyone who lives outside of the country or from a foreign country the crew that are on the ship, after everyone else is off, then they pretty much have to stay on the boat, turn the boat around, go back out to the open sea, and that's where they'll quarantine.
0: And that was the biggest question because I had been seeing that all over the place. Crew stays on board. Okay, so they stay on board for two more weeks until right. whatever and thing it, passes. And then what happens to the ship? They're just literally just going to well, be floating remember, aimlessly out there?
2: The, the ship's registry is a different country. So the ship's registry and its owner will determine next steps because out on international waters, there's no enforcement out there, if you will. So it's based on the country of origin or the country of ownership and the country of license and as to how they're going to treat it moving forward.
0: And what about those crew members in the meantime, who's monitoring them? Who's going to be helping them out while they're out there?
2: Well, they have onboard medical personnel and then the United States is lending, if you will, some people from the CDC and health and human services, they have been lending them In fact, One of the doctors that's overseeing the operation in Oakland was one of the doctors who observed the operation with that cruise ship off the coast of Japan, Dr. John Red, and he is sort of becoming the de facto cruise containment guy, if you will. So the United States, of course, is going to kick in. And by the way, most of the international crew members are from Canada,
0: oh, so okay. it's not
2: really a big stretch here.
0: Well, and that makes a lot of sense, too, because I didn't know where they were all coming from. I just felt like they were getting the short end of the stick after what happened in Japan, where— 700 people ended up getting coronavirus because of such close quarters there. And obviously once everybody else is off, they can space around a little bit more, but I just felt like they were just tossing them out into the ocean just to continue waiting out there while everybody was being attended to.
2: I think in this particular case, Oscar, you've got a situation where people are on edge. People don't know what's going on and you've got these NIMBYs. Honestly, they don't want this stuff going on in their backyard. And so I think one of the compromises in this particular case was like, okay, listen, listen, Can we use your dock for a couple days? Can we disembark all the passengers, get them off to the places they need to go? In exchange, we'll get the boat out of there as quickly as possible and all the crew on there. Now, that's not to say if they're crew members, which, by the way, there are crew members on there that are infected and need medical care. They are included in this triage of folks that will go to regional hospitals Mm -hmm. in the Oakland area. Regardless if they're crew, not crew, or where they're from, they're all going to be treated first on the ground. It's the people that are just symptomatic and can still kind of walk without assistance, anything like that. They're the ones that are going to be taken and sent off to other places. But the crew, that was sort of the compromise. It's like, we don't want that boat here any longer. It has to be. We don't want anyone on board that doesn't need to be there. Let's send it back out to the open waters.
0: You've been on the COVID-19 beat in Los Angeles and California. Is there anything else that you're hearing with regards to how officials are handling it or any new cases, anything like that?
2: There are new outbreaks down in Riverside County, and that's big because all three of them are from the Coachella Valley, which might lend itself to cancellations of the Coachella Music Festival, the Stagecoach Country Festival. So no official word yet, but now that you hear three from Coachella Valley, it could get a little dicey with big festivals coming up in the spring.
0: Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI News. Thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure.
2: We are taking on in this campaign, not just Joe Biden, we're taking on, we're taking on the 60 billionaires who are funding his campaign. Joining us
0: now is Steve Shepard, Senior Campaigns and Elections Editor at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thanks for having me. So despite all of the hysteria that's going on with COVID-19, the coronavirus, we do have another round of states that are voting for the Democratic nominating process here. There's six states that are voting on Tuesday. Michigan seems to be the big prize of the day. Steve, tell us a little bit about what polling is showing ahead of the contest.
3: Yeah, it's the big prize of the day. It has the most delegates. It's also one of the states that Democrats lost in the 2016 general election that they have spent so much time and energy over the last three and a half years trying to plot a path back to recapturing Michigan. Really, the state that the campaigns are focused on most out of the six voting on Tuesday. And the polls show Joe Biden, especially in the past week coming out of Super Tuesday, opening up a large lead over Bernie Sanders, anywhere between roughly 15 and 30 points, depending on which poll you look at, that is a significant advantage. But if there's one thing that recent experience teaches us from the 2016 Michigan primary, which was perhaps Bernie Sanders Most important victory during that race against Hillary Clinton is that a lead like that, even of that magnitude, is not necessarily safe.
0: My favorite lines from your article, Michigan stands as one of the most significant polling failures in modern politics. So what happened then compared to now? Because pollsters do seem confident that they at least have it right this time.
3: What happened was Hillary Clinton entered the Michigan primary in early March of 2016, with a 21.4 point lead in the polls over Bernie Sanders. And it was Bernie Sanders who ended up winning the primary by one point. That is about as big of a miss as you can get. For example, we talk about the 2016 general election being a bit of a polling error. In reality, in the final national surveys, Hillary Clinton had a three-point lead over Donald Trump, and she won the national popular vote by two points not nearly quite the 22-point turnaround as in Michigan in the primary. Look, pollsters think that they've largely figured this out. It had been a long time since there had been a competitive primary for the Democratic presidential nomination in Michigan. You might recall in 2008, the state moved up its primary to try to make it more important. But as a result, the Democratic National Committee stripped Michigan of its delegates as a penalty. So it ended up not being consequential. And because of that, I think pollsters were largely flying blind going into that primary Bernie Sanders has talked a lot about during both this campaign and the previous campaign, mobilizing young voters and bringing them out to the polls to vote in these primaries. That happened in Michigan, and pollsters didn't see it coming four years ago, and they think they're better prepared this time, even though Bernie Sanders trails by nearly an identical margin.
0: And this time around, Joe Biden is winning across a lot of demographic groups, particularly women, older voters, and non-white voters. Monmouth
3: University poll out today gave Joe Biden a 20-point lead, Among women, only a 10-point lead among men. Bernie Sanders has typically run, especially in in the larger field of candidates, he's run 5 to 10 points better among men in almost all the states compared with women. And I think that's only going to be exacerbated in a two-candidate race, which is kind of what we have now. Among voters under 50, Bernie Sanders has an 11-point lead. We talk about his advantage with young voters. But Joe Biden might be eating into some of those margins, especially as some of the other candidates have dropped out of the race. We're going to get exit polls from a lot of these states that vote tomorrow. And so we'll be able to learn more from those. Joe Biden continues to have, though, a commanding lead among older voters. Voters aged 50 to 64, he leads by 32 points and he leads by 46 points among seniors 65 and older. Those are the most reliable voters, especially in primaries. And Joe Biden is cleaning up among them, at least in the polls. And that has been the case in exit polls coming out of all the states that have voted thus far.
0: And Joe Biden has the momentum right now after Super Tuesday. He got some key endorsements from Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. So at least the establishment, the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party are coalescing behind Joe Biden. Some of the other states that are going to be voting are Washington, Missouri, North Dakota, Idaho, Mississippi. A couple of these states were former caucus states and are now moving into primary states. And this doesn't bode as well for Bernie Sanders. He primarily does really well in caucus states. So that might be another thing that might hinder him on Tuesday.
3: Yeah, I think what we saw in 2016 was the caucus states, the states where it was really the most motivated party activists who were able to show up to their local precinct at a specific time and participate in a caucus, were better for Bernie Sanders than they were for Hillary Clinton. And I think that's been the case also so far in 2020. And so some of those former caucus states like Minnesota that switched to a primary was a state where Bernie Sanders didn't do nearly as well in this cycle as he did in 2016. It remains to be seen, obviously, with a state like Idaho, which was a really strong state for Bernie Sanders, small, largely white, mostly rural, and had a caucus. What happens now that there's a primary? There's really not a lot of polling out of Idaho. There won't be a lot of data to go by until we get those election results. But so far, that has been the trend, that the switch from caucuses to primaries has brought more voters into the process and has weakened Bernie Sanders' position in those states accordingly.
0: Steve Shepard, Senior Campaigns and Elections Editor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank
2: you.
0: We're introducing New York State Clean hand sanitizer made conveniently by... The state of New York. Joining us now is Andrew Hawkins, senior reporter at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Yeah, my pleasure. We're doing a lot of topics about COVID-19 and the coronavirus and, and how it's spreading and how a lot of cities and even the country, the federal government at large, how they are responding to this and what they're doing to limit the spread. Andrew, you wrote an article for The Verge about how public transportation agencies across the U.S. are ramping up their efforts in response to this and they're doing a lot of extra cleaning. New York specifically, New York has 4,373 buses, 6,418 train cars that they need to deal with. How is New York and other cities dealing with this?
1: I think you pretty much nailed it right there. It's stepping up the cleaning. There's a lot of bleach that's being brought out from supply closets across the country and being collected by these transit agencies and used in hopefully a systemic fashion to make sure that these modes of transportation, our subways, our buses, our commuter trains are being cleaned at a more frequent pace than they typically are. So, for instance, the NTA says that they're going to be cleaning every single subway and bus and commuter train that they have every 72 hours. That could change with more cases emerge. But right now they're sort of sticking to the schedule Other transit agencies like BART in San Francisco says that it's stepping up its cleaning efforts. And they haven't noticed any sort of dip in ridership as of yet. But that could change also as we start to see cases multiply. But yeah, I think cleaning is sort of like the number one thing that these agencies are doing to respond, as well as providing a lot of protective gear and supplies to the workers, the cleaning workers, the train and conductors, the the bus drivers, who are really kind of on the front lines of this thing as it continues to spread.
0: We're still learning a lot more about the coronavirus as the time goes by. We still don't know exactly how long it can survive on surfaces. Let's say somebody sneezes on a handrail or something. But best estimates, looking at other coronaviruses and things like that, it can last anywhere from a few hours to a few days. So even with this 72-hour disinfection routine that they're having, there's still a possibility that it could be there. But just to caution everybody, There has been no outbreak in public transportation just yet. This is just how the cities and agencies are responding to this right now. But the messaging is important on all of this. And there was a couple of hiccups with the mayor, Bill de Blasio, saying, hey, everything's okay. And then like another moment, he's saying, well, maybe you should bike or walk if you can to work.
1: It's a little bit of a mixed message. Last week, the mayor in New York City was really trying to push the message, public transportation is safe, you can continue to use it. He was himself photographed taking a subway trip from City Hall into Brooklyn to the Office of Emergency Management. And then the week after, both the mayor and the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, came out with sort of a different message, which was, if you're going to ride the subway and you see a really packed train car arrive at your station, maybe wait for the next train car to arrive. I don't know how great of a message that is specifically (laughs) because it's not clear that a packed train car is less of a vector for disease than a packed platform in a subway station. And those can get really dangerous too if people start to really kind of overcrowd on the platforms itself. So there might need to be some tweaking of the message there. And it's very likely that they might try to tweak the scheduling of some of the subways and buses to make sure that there are more trains passing through to deal with some of these crowding issues.
0: But epidemiologists still say that it's kind of difficult to gauge if you can get it by riding in public transportation. They say a lot of it depends on how crowded is it. Obviously, if there's a lot of sick people on there, maybe the chances increase. And then how much time you're going to spend there on either the bus or the train car or whatever it is. First and
1: foremost, if you're feeling sick, if you're a person who's feeling sick, you have a few symptoms, not really sure what it is you should probably avoid taking public transportation. It's a crowded situation and that's probably a smart move is to just avoid doing that altogether. A lot of employers are trying to make accommodations for people to work from home. But at the same time, there's a lot of people who have jobs out there where they don't have employers that allow them to do that. And so they're going to be taking public transportation to get to their jobs. I'm thinking also of a lot of like healthcare workers, people who work at hospitals, places that are really sort of like the key pieces of our infrastructure in terms of how we're responding to the coronavirus. So there's a bit of a complication there. And it is true that epidemiologists and infectious disease experts say that we should need to practice social distancing. If you've ever ridden you know, a, a crowded four train through Manhattan, right. sort of peak commute time, it's next to impossible to practice social distancing from anybody. So we're getting a lot of information and we're trying to learn more about it. And I think there's a lot to keep in mind. But at the same time, you know, I uncovered this. Uh, there's a study from 2011 where they modeled a possible influenza outbreak in New York City to find out how it would affect public transportation. And I thought a key point of this study was that only 4% of transmissions would occur on the subway. It's not clear how applicable that is to our current situation, but maybe there's some assurances to be taken from research such as that.
0: Andrew Hawkins, senior reporter at The Verge, thank you very much for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.